Into the Void, a Black Sabbath podcast. I'm your host, John, and I'm here with my co-host, Darren. And on today's episode, we will be discussing Dio's first live album, Intermission, and the Ozzy Osbourne, Randy Rhodes live album, Tribute. Dio's Intermission was released in June of 1986 and consisted of five live songs from the first leg of the Sacred Heart Tour and one studio track featuring then-new guitarist Craig Goldie, who had replaced Vivian Campbell during the Sacred Heart Tour cycle. Fans who would have rather had a well-timed double live album felt the rather short 34 minutes, 20 seconds running time left them wanting more. The album also seemed to arrive with little fanfare or promotion, flying below many metalheads' radar. To also take away from the experience, Craig Goldie is rumored to have replaced all the rhythm tracks on Vivian's live songs. What does make the album interesting and special is the inclusion of a new studio track entitled Time to Burn, which served as an introduction to the fans of the at-the-time new guitar player Craig Goldie. Ozzy Osbourne's tribute album was released on March 19, 1987, in honor of guitarist Randy Rhodes, who was tragically killed in an airplane accident five years prior. Produced by Max Norman, the bulk of the songs were taken from a show in Cleveland, Ohio, recorded on May 11, 1981, that was originally used for a radio broadcast. Parts of Randy's guitar solo spotlight in Suicide Solution also used audio from another radio broadcast, this time the King Biscuit Flower Hour show from Montreal on July 28, 1981. For those curious, the original radio broadcasts, unedited and undoctored, can be found on famous bootlegs like the well-titled Bat's Head Soup. The versions of Goodbye to Romance and No Bone Movies would be taken from a show that featured the original Blizzard of Oz band with Lee Kerslake on drums and Bob Daisley on bass. Although the exact location of these recordings is unknown, it is rumored to be October 2nd, 1980, Southampton, England. Also featured on the album would be three Black Sabbath numbers, Children of the Grave, Iron Man, and Paranoid. These three live numbers with Randy Rhodes were originally planned to be released on the Speak of the Devil album, but the decision was made to hold on to them for an inclusion on a full live album featuring Randy in the future. Perhaps the most special moment on the album comes at the end with studio outtakes from Randy recording the acoustic instrumental song D. For many fans, this was the first time ever hearing Randy's voice as he talks with producer Max Norman about jet noises and his thoughts on a particular take. Okay, uh, so we decided, for everybody out there, we decided with this episode that we were going to include intermission and tribute into one episode. They fit into our timeline. The last episode we did was The Ultimate Sin which was released in February of 86. So then moving along our timeline, Dio Intermission would come next and Ozzy's tribute album uh, would follow that. So we just thought it, uh, we just kind of felt like we wanted to include these into the same episode. So uh, Darren, what are your memories of Dio's Intermission? Dio's Intermission kind of flew under my radar. I, I do remember seeing it in a record store and I wasn't, I mean, I. I saw the album cover and 
it brought back memories of seeing him. I saw him twice on the Sacred Heart tour, once with Vivian and later uh, with Craig Goldie. And I had a good time. I, I enjoyed it. Dio concert was always, always great. Um, you know, there was nothing to ever come away from seeing Dio in concert and have any complaints. I mean, he was the consummate showman. The set list was always great. The musicians were always top notch. I mean, it was just the show to end all shows. Um, it was not my first tour. I originally saw Dio on Last in Line, and that was that was my first Dio concert where I can see him in, in full glory with the uh, stage set and everything. Um, but anyway, so seeing the album in the record store and seeing the uh, the cover with him holding the sword up to the to the dragon, the mechanical dragon kind of made me chuckle a little bit because I thought that was one of the more corny aspects of the concert. Um, it was all good until that dragon, they wheeled that dragon out. And it was just like, it was kind of silly. But um, I, I realized in retrospect that it was a high point, it was a high watermark for Dio personally in his career where he felt like everything finally came together. He was able to do everything he's always wanted to do. And so if nothing else, it kind of represents that that aspect of, of Dio's career, but I didn't really get that at the time. Um, so that was sort of a moot point, I guess. Um, turning the cover over and seeing only five songs was kind of strange. I mean, I wasn't really sure what the reason was that it was an EP. Uh, I knew there was the, the song Time to Burn, and I'm not sure if I heard it outside of the album context, if maybe I heard it on one of the heavy metal forums on the radio at the time. Um, but I remember not really being too impressed with it uh, at the time. Re revisited it recently uh, to do the podcast. And I don't think I've really changed my opinion of the song. Um, it's very AOR. It sounds a little bit phoned in. We'll say that Craig Goldie's guitar solo was probably the highlight of the song for me. And I'm not a huge Craig Goldie fan, but I, I do think that he really delivers on this particular song um but overall the song is kind of lackluster it sounds to me like it would be well suited for an 80s movie something like similar to what um hungry for heaven ended up on the movie vision quest and we we talked about that when, when we did our sacred heart podcast um so i wasn't really impressed with it and it wasn't enough to make me buy the album um, collectively they're they're not the songs that i i don't dislike any of the songs i mean of course you know there's the medley the big medley with rock and roll children long live rock and roll man of the silver mountain and you know i love long live rock and roll and man on the silver mountain rock and roll children is a good song it really pretty much typifies sacred heart for me and the kind of melodramatic um AOR-ish vibe that comes across. It's less hard rock and more kind of, it, it's not a ballad, but it has that sentimental core that uh, became a, a big part of Dio's, of the personality of Dio's music. And I, I don't dislike that, but it, it's not what resonates the most for me. So even though I don't have any real issues with the song, it's not one of my favorites. Um, King of Rock and Roll to me was a highlight, one of the highlights on Sacred Heart. So it's cool hearing that. 
Rambo in a Dark, of course, that's that's a classic. Um, and Sacred Heart title track is okay. Uh, the production on it, it's not very good. Uh, it could be better, it could be worse. But um, you know, I I guess the thing that that, that sort of that I, I like I started to say I I kind of passed the record by initially, and I, I did end up picking it up, but I wasn't wasn't really thrilled about it. Um, but when I did get it, I was sort of my my impression, my attitude toward it was kind of lukewarm. And, and again, some of that could have been because at the time, the music that was exciting me wasn't so much traditional heavy metal anymore, really. It, it, it seemed to kind of run its course a little bit. Uh, so I was, it was more into the stuff that was coming out of the underground at the time. Some of the more, like, more aggressive music was, was really what was floating my boat at the time. So this didn't really... They really do a whole lot for me. Um, but like I said, uh, it, it seemed a little anemic in its content. Uh, the main attraction would be, should be the unreleased song, Time to Burn. Uh, that was kind of a disappointment. The album should probably be called Transition rather than Intermission, because it's not really an intermission as such. It really serves as a transition from Vivian Campbell to uh, Craig Goldie. Uh, and you, you do see, in, by contrast, the difference in the guitar players, although it seems as though somebody who was producing this thing tried to sort of underscore some of Vivian's talent in the way that it was mixed, and you kind of, it kind of harkens back to that conflict on Live Evil, where there was that dispute over what was going on in the studio was Dio really coming into the studio after hours and turning up his voice or was it him just wanting to hear things in a louder volume this almost settles the dispute in a way because Dio's voice is so much louder than every other instrument on this I think personally uh, especially the lead guitar I mean the lead guitar work is really good and it's just it's strange that it's not louder, that it's not more out front. And I guess given the circumstances, I'm sure there were some hard feelings from Dio to, to Vivian at, at this particular time. And, and maybe that was, maybe that came across in the way that the album was produced, but it's a shame because um, Vivian, Vivian really has some good soloing. And if you had seen him in concert, either on the Sacred Heart tour or the tour before, you, you would have witnessed that. Um, so it, it's, it's kind of a shame that, that this is the last thing that, that Vivian did with Dio and it's not more celebrated in all fairness and actually in more fairness to the fans. But such as it is, um, I, I don't think in, when, you, when you, at this point in time, when you look back on the Dio discography, I don't think Intermission is one of the albums that is a must have. Uh, it's a placeholder, and like I said, it serves as a transition from one guitar player to another. It ends one era, probably the most valuable, most significant era of Dio's career, and begins the second, of, I would consider, three parts. Um, but this is the beginning of the second part of Dio's career, which would be Craig Goldie, and then what was the kid's name, the, the, the young kid, the 17-year-old, Rowan? Yeah, Rowan Robertson. Rowan Robertson, yeah, on Lock Up the Wolves. 
uh, another largely forgettable album. Not not altogether bad, but I, I would probably rank it a little bit lower than Dream Evil, which is a decent album. But um, yeah, the unfortunate thing is this sort of memorializes the first um, career point in, in uh, marks the first part of Dio's career. And uh, it almost kind of serves a little bit as a blemish to it, I think. Yeah, for me, it's kind of a similar thing. I, I don't remember getting this till after I had Dream Evil. And at the time, I was so into Dio that I'm sure if I saw this in a store or was aware that it was coming out, I would have been all over it. But it just seemed to like one day I just saw it in the store and was like, what is this? You know, I've yeah. <laughs> never seen this before. I actually got it on, on cassette. And it was disappointing that uh, it was so short. Although as a editor's note, uh, it's kind of long for an EP, but it's short for an album. Although I, I checked this, the original David Lee Roth era of Van Halen, only the first Van Halen album, Van Halen one is longer than this. All the other Van Halen albums are like 30 minutes, 31 minutes, you know, so those are all pretty short too. But as a live album, it, 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 it felt disappointing. Uh, on my YouTube channel, I did a video once of uh, missed live album opportunities. And this, this was one that I talked about how a well done double live album to bring to a close this era of the band, even if you don't, you know, maybe if, even if it was put to works before Vivian had left the band, it, a good solid live album would have fit really nicely, you know, right here in at this point in Dio's career. So this that was disappointing. Uh, the studio track on it is also underwhelming. It sounds very, you've said this already, AOR-ish kind of radio rock. It, it just doesn't doesn't jump out at all. I think at the time, if I had discovered intermission before dream evil came out there might have been some excitement to hear dio this song with dio's new new guitar player but being that i didn't get this till after i had dream evil it didn't uh, it just it, it did nothing for me uh the cover also seems kind of did, the whole packaging of the whole thing feels kind of slapdash and i don't want to say cheap but it just it, it feels half baked or something. Yeah, the thing's too yeah. short. The cover seems like, I don't know, like just a little, not blurry, but like low quality or something. You would just have expected something more from it. Uh, I remember I had it on a, I had it on cassette. There was no like information or pictures or, you know, it was just, I almost remember thinking like, is this even, is this a bootleg or is this like yeah. a live at last sit situation? I did appreciate that King of Rock and Roll was on there. I think that that's a kind of an underrated uh, Dio song, maybe my favorite song off of, uh, sacred heart so that was exciting to have king of rock and roll on here the mix didn't feel very exciting it didn't feel particularly live the guitars are pulled farther back the guitar is farther back in the mix than i would have liked it to have been so that was a real disappointment i was excited to hear vivian campbell playing live and i just remember thinking his solo sounded good but it seemed like 
there wasn't the rhythm guitar stuff was far back in the mix. We would learn later that it was rumored that Craig Goldie, for some reason, replaced all the all the rhythm parts. I don't know why. Uh, Hearing Sacred Heart was kind of cool. I thought it was weird that uh, side two begins with the studio track, Time to Burn. That should have been at the end. You know, it would have made more sense, right? You're sort of breaking up the continuity of this, this live show. Never been a big fan of Dio's medleys. Uh, this is something that Dio loved to do, and it's, it sort of makes you feel... You don't get enough of rock and roll children. You don't get enough of Long Live Rock and Roll. You don't get enough of Man on, on the Silver Mountain. These are all great songs. And I don't really want to hear edited versions of yeah. songs. Uh, so that is a big disappointment. Although that's something that Ronnie would carry uh, throughout his entire career. They did it on, on Live Evil. And we talked about our disappointment with, you know, I think it's Sign of the Southern Cross and, and that medley. Uh, heaven and hell into sign and southern cross and all that and i was disappointed yeah. there i'm disappointed here uh we rock feels awkward at the end of the thing it maybe should have been at the, as the opener although king of rock and roll is a good opener i guess um, yeah. overall it's very forgettable uh it's uh it's almost like this sort of curiosity thing that nobody really knows about it was never from what i can researching it was never officially released on cd it did show up on the sacred heart there was a double disc oh, sacred heart deluxe edition that came out 10 plus years ago and it was included on, on the extras disc so it's just sort of this weird album that is just sort of forgotten about uh there's even a really interesting interview with ronnie he's on his tour bus and i think it's on the angry machines tour and the interviewer has CDs for every album in Ronnie's career. He goes from, I can't remember if he does Elf, but he has all the rainbow CDs and he's handing Ronnie the covers one at a time. And Ronnie's giving his thoughts on each album. And Ronnie's being extremely candid, like maybe one of the most candid interviews I've ever seen of Ronnie. And as they go through the Dio stuff, uh, they lead up to Angry Machines and Ronnie goes, you left one out. And the interviewer is like, what do you mean? And he's like intermission and the interviewer is almost like confused, like he doesn't even know what intermission is. And that kind of sort of sums up this record for me. It's just like forgotten and it could have been so much more, you know, a really well-produced live album from the Sacred Heart tour, which was one of the biggest productions that they did. A double live album with Vivian, the original classic band, uh, it would have been very well-timed and I think it would have been very well received and maybe using, you know, uh, wondering out loud, maybe if the band had done a double live album and used that as like a time to let everybody take a break before they had to go in for another studio record, maybe it could have helped repair some of the friction that was starting to develop within the band i mean who knows vivian left mid-tour anyways but i think yeah no i i think the crux of the the conflict was was over money and unless vivian was going to get what he felt was promised to him there wasn't going to be any resolve to this situation and i think he tried to play hardball by approaching dio in the middle of the tour and say look if you don't 
come through with what you said you were going to do with these promises. I'm going to leave. Dan's like, okay, see ya. Yeah, and it's interesting. I've never heard Vivian talk about this intermission album. I've never heard anybody in the band talk about that. I've heard Dio mention it in, in passing, but I've never heard, well, you know, Vinny or, or Vivian or anybody really talk about this, you know? And pretty, so, yeah, it would seem pretty obvious why Vivian wouldn't talk about it because it was obviously made after, you know, he, after he left the band because Craig Goldie's on it. And I'm sure he wouldn't embrace it because like you said, you have Craig Goldie playing on the rhythm tracks. I'm not sure he, if his rhythm tracks were replaced or he just added yeah, Craig. But regardless, that's not something I think Vivian would embrace. I wouldn't, and I'm sure you wouldn't either. <laughs> um, it's taking your performance and doctoring it up. And you have to ask the question, why? You know, Dio, the Dio band is a one guitar band. So why do we have two guitars, two different guitars, and one the successor of the original on one recording but let's get let's get back to this this medley thing because it's fascinating um i i miss dio and i'm gonna i'm gonna go so far as to say i miss him just about every other day i listen to music all the time and in some way or another it doesn't really matter what i'm listening to i i usually think about dio and there's a lot of things about dio that i miss one thing that i do not miss <laughs> are the song medleys. They are so frustrating. <laughs> it begins with Rainbow and with 16th century green sleeves. And I think there's a, there's, there's a medley with 16th century green sleeves, um, Man on the Silver Mountain. And invariably, Man on the Silver Mountain is always played fast. And you might say, yeah, well, that's something like that- trying to get through it. It's like, yeah, yeah. we're quite- never has the that's a perfect song for you end a song right you end a song the crowd's sitting there ronnie's not talking on the mic and all of a sudden that iconic riff kicks it and the crowd goes crazy but when it's put inside the medley it's like they just go right into it the whole band is playing you don't get that like moment of the crowd like no. hearing that iconic opening riff exactly. and the crowd going crazy and then the band kicks in you know it's sort of the opportunity that. is the opportunity is wasted and in this medley it has no significance to rock and roll children when rock and roll children when these the live version of rock and roll children production aside it's actually really good dio sells it and i i think i like it more in this context than i do on the studio album but then all of a sudden it goes into long live rock and roll. And you can kind of use your imagination and you can say, well, okay, so the rock and roll children and let long, long live rock and roll. Okay, it's sort of like, what? That's even kind of a stretch. And then when it goes from long live rock and roll into Man on the Silver Mountain and then finishes rock and roll children, it just, it takes some of the steam away from rock and roll children, certainly takes the steam away from long live rock and roll, which is way too fast. And the same can be said for Man on the Silver Mountain. It's too fast. But the two, the tempo thing, that, that even goes back to Rainbow. I mean, when you hear Cozy Powell playing Man on the Silver Mountain, it always seemed, it always seemed a little bit fast to me. Um, I'm not sure why, but you're, you're right when you said this is Man on the Silver Mountain is, is like, that's a song where you want to like, you want to stop what you're doing and you want to present that in its in the best place in the yeah. set because and it's, it's probably of, his most recognizable song yeah. from rainbow it's the song you hear it on classic rock radio so if he had done what like what ozzy typically does at the end of his show he plays a couple black sabbath numbers so ronnie could have played 
Man on the Silver Mountain, Long Live Rock and Roll. And if he wanted to represent his time in Black Sabbath, play play Heaven in Hell. And then you know, if he wants to come back on for an encore and do a Dio number, whatever. But there's three songs, you know, I don't think that that's too excessive in a in a show uh it's uh, you know ozzy does that all the time he ends his shows with we're going to talk about tribute he ends his shows during that era with like iron man and, and uh, paranoid and children in the grave and 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 it fits at the end of the show because it's kind of like okay we're going to go back and, and play some of these special songs from my past and so yeah to sort of cut them short like this and, and put him in a in a medley like that it, if he wanted to do man on the silver mountain and and heaven and hell and mob rules you know three songs from his past you know would have worked this way it's sort of short changes them it makes it feel like it's rushed like they're just sort of uh blasting through it and it, it just yeah it, i i never yeah. liked it it's, it was always disappointing there's there really are no during this era of the band, certainly during Black Sabbath, there are no songs that I want them to cut short. I want to hear the whole song. You know, it's like there's nothing that I'm like, yeah, you know, this song is only okay for the first verse and chorus. No, you know, I want to hear, I want to hear all of Sign of the Southern Cross. I want to hear all of Man on the Silver Mountain. These are great songs. <laughs> yeah, that was curious. We're talking about Live Evil on the podcast and you, you take a highlight of the album mob rules which is sign of the southern cross and you split it up and i think it was if i'm not i don't have the album right in front of me but i think it was like continued on another side yeah i mean it breaks it up really badly um but but getting back to your point about this could have been a more celebrated double live album there's there a couple of things i wanted to want to talk about in response to what you said um the album technically is longer than an EP, shorter than an LP. But then when you said, you know, the Van Halen albums and most of the albums in the 70s and early 80s were generally around 40 minutes. I mean, you try yeah, to have an album. To 40 minutes was a pretty acceptable, typical. Yeah, it was, it, was, it, it was tailored for vinyl. So you'd have, you know, you could be as, as short as 15, really no longer than 20 minutes. So your typical album was about 38 minutes, 40 minutes. But it's not, it's not really the length of this. It's the fact that we have a nine, almost a 10-minute track in the Rock and Roll Children, Long Live Rock and Roll, Man in a Silver Mountain medley, which is basically one song. And you don't really feel satisfied. I don't feel satisfied with it in this, in this, in this format because I feel like it's shortchanging all three songs that are involved. And then you have the six-minute Sacred Heart. Um, the thing that that's different about even though an album may be shorter, but it feels like you have more music is because there there's more songs. Um, there's 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 five songs on this, six songs actually, if you include the the studio track. But it doesn't feel it, it doesn't feel like it's a full album. Um, you're right; it should have had a full length album or a double double album live treatment. Like I've always felt that, and I guess this goes back to Kiss. You get three studio albums and then you're ready for a live album. So yeah. at this point, we were ready for a live album. Yeah. Should have been planned out further in advance. So maybe it was before Vivian decided he was going to quit, probably, but it's not the way it worked out. So I think while he was kind of putting this deal, was getting his ducks in a row with, with, with Craig Goldie and 
writing songs for the next album and just kind of getting used to working with one another, this was actually an intermission uh, of sorts. I've said that it, it serves better as a transition, but in the sense where you're going from, from one situation to another, it kind of is an intermission. Um, so it was sort of rushed. The, the thing, not to jump all over the place, but the thing that confused me when we're talking about our first impressions of the album, the thing that confused me was that Dio had a lot of 12 inch singles out at the time. Uh, I had a few of them and I still do. Uh, there was one for Rainbow in the Dark. Yeah. There was one for um, uh, Holy Diver. Yeah. There was at least two or three per album. Generally, there, were, there was two. So when I first saw this, I just thought it was another 12-inch single. I didn't realize. And I, I would try to buy those 12-inch singles, and I'd, I'd look at them, and, would, of course, it would be you know, the single for the, the song. And then you'd have a couple bonus tracks. In, in, in the case of the Dio 12-inches, they were, they were live tracks. So it kind of seemed like the same sort of thing. And I, one of the reasons why it kind of diminished the, the sense of urgency, it's like, oh, this is another another single here you know this is like one of the many things that that Dio puts out I didn't understand that it was a standalone release and in retrospect I'm not sure I would have really cared that much anyway but yeah it, it deserved a double album treatment um and you could say that well there was really nothing in a live format to celebrate or to memorialize the, the Vivian era don't forget, and it was a big deal at the time, um, the special from the Spectrum, yeah. 84, the home video. Everybody bought that. Even I remember I got a, I begged my mom to buy a VCR. That's even the, more reason why they could have, they had that show. They could have released, you know, that could have been the live. Well, album. it was. It was released in the format of a home video. So rather yeah. than have it on a, you know, the, the vinyl medium or the cassette medium, media you had it on on vhs which was like supposedly even cooler because it gave you the full concert experience not only could you hear it but you could see it as well so i I think technically that was probably what they would have considered to be like the big live thing um and again i mean you know there's always things you can go back and you can pick apart like should the special from the spectrum have been an audio soundtrack as well yeah absolutely but it wasn't it was just a vhs video um you know, even Iron Maiden, I mean, at the time, well, in 1985, Iron Maiden did, they had the video, the VHS of Live After Death, but they also had the double record. So Dio should have done that, but he didn't. Don't know why. Maybe it was record label budget, opted for one or the other. Well, they decided to do the VHS, but, you know, Maiden, Maiden did well by doing the, the video and the live album. Dio could have certainly done that. Um, yeah, what makes this sound feel feel incomplete too is you're leaving out some very important songs. You don't get yeah. lost in line. You don't get holy diver. You don't you don't get stand up and shout. Uh, so you're just you're missing out on these. And they could have if they had extended this another twenty minutes, they could have had a really a long running single. Uh, live record i just looked at acdc's if you want blood clocks in at 52 minutes so they could have just added another four or five songs had a really tight like if you want blood type tight package you know there you cut out the drum solos and the the extended guitar solos and stuff that you typically get on a, on a double live album have a really strong 
punchy, uh, right to the point, live record, get all the hits in there, get Holy Diver in there, get Last in Line in there, get Stand Up and Shout in there, uh, get uh, Don't Talk to Strangers, you know, all the songs that, that are the classics that you would have expected on a live album. I think they could have gotten those in there, dropped the studio track uh, and had a really tight, concise live record. This is just sort of confusing because it's just, it's just it's, it's too short. The studio track takes away from the live thing. And yeah, so it's, it is, it's just, it's a little bit uh, disappointing and we really wouldn't get a proper live record from the Vivian era of the band till the Donington uh, CD was released. They released that CD, I don't know how many years, five, seven years ago, and it was just re-released as of oh, the making of this podcast, like a week or two ago, they just re-released it again. So it would take quite some time for us to get a live document from that classic era of the band. But it is what it is. It's an interesting little curiosity. Curious it's an artifact. Thing. And uh, yeah, we, artifact. Weren't, we weren't originally going to do this or or go on to tribute, but somebody on Facebook on our um, Into the Void uh, Black Sabbath podcast Facebook requested that we do it. He seemed like he would be pretty upset if we didn't of course it got the wheels turning and i thought well you know why not i mean these are uh these are actually official releases and if we're going through everything chronologically but it just kind of stands the reason that even though they're official releases they're maybe not so much in tribute but we'll, we'll talk about tribute in a few minutes but um definitely with intermission it's one that that i i have to remind myself that it exists like oh oh yeah i mean it's, it's sort of like the thing that comes with an intermission intermission oh yeah that's right you know? <laughs> yeah yeah even the name is sort of like something you're not supposed to it's not really involved in the band it's like an intermission is a break it's yeah. a, it doesn't it's not part of the show it is and it isn't part of the show it's when it's when you go somewhere else and you know, don't pay attention to the show. The show's not going on during intermission. So even the title sort yeah. of gives it like a throwaway, uh, and throwaway you, vibe. Yeah, and, and you know, it would have been a great opportunity. Of course, I, th I, I think Dio, based on what I've read and, you know, and we just did, we, we watched the, um, the documentary, Dreamers Never Die. <clears throat> and we had our um, Sabbath Sunday on that. Um, so you get a lot, a lot of insight. There's a lot. There's a lot of things available now where you get more insight into Dio's personality, and I think a lot of his decisions were emotionally driven. And I think this is probably another decision that was emotionally driven. There was some animosity towards Vivian for doing what he did. So he wasn't, like I said, not to get redundant, but I don't think he was in the mood or in the right frame of mind to want to celebrate, even though he could have been unbiased and. and thought about it from a fan perspective or just from the logical perspective of like okay well this was a significant part of my career and regardless of what my feelings are for vivian right now i'm going to celebrate that because they're my songs these are you know tours these are shows that i put 100 percent into and I'd, I'd like people to to hear that and i like to celebrate that part of my career but he didn't quite have the emotional i guess wherewithal to look at it from that perspective. So I think that's one reason why this was sort of just kind of like in a compact format. Yeah, and, and it could have like, been well, record label pressure too, you know, maybe the label, maybe yeah, put out an album how much money would How much more money would it have been to do something like Speak of the Devil or any, any significant live album, any live album that's highly regarded like Strangers of the Night, 
Live and Dangerous, Kiss Alive, they're always live at Budokan. I mean, they're always double live albums. It's accepted. It's sure it's expensive, but I mean, we're already going to the trouble of putting out a live album. And and people generally don't aren't really big on live albums. There has to be something about the record that makes it more appealing. And and one of the ways to do that is to make it a double album, give it a gatefold, um, maybe put some bonus tracks, some studio tracks, Kiss did with a live too you know you gotta it's like you're not really going to break the market wide open with a single live album you gotta go for it you gotta go all the way the whole nine yards you gotta you gotta put a double live album out you 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 know you you have to get like the whole gotta be special have a nice packaging and gatefold and you know it's back then live albums were something that were celebrated Right. They were big deals because you couldn't, unless you saw the band in concert, you couldn't hear them live. So these were really big deals. They were packaged in a certain way to be like a real special thing, you know, in addition to the artist's catalogs. And this isn't. <laughs> no, and it, it should be, especially when you consider that up to this point, we have three studio albums. And like you said, there are some songs that are conspicuously missing. You know, where's Holy Diver, um, Stand Up and Shout, Last in Line, where, you know, those should be on a live album. How can you have something that you can call a live album and not, and not have those songs and have those glaring omissions? And uh, yeah, I mean, so it, it's sort of an illegitimate live album in that sense and it does it kind of falls in limbo it's like what what is it is it a live album is it is it a live ep is it centered on the studio track and if so why didn't they call it time to burn that would have been better a better title than intermission intermission just sounds so almost defeatist and almost kind of (laughs) a deflated sort of we don't know what to do so we're just going to take an intermission yeah Yeah, but nothing's working, everybody. So we're going to take a short intermission. Yeah, right. There you go. Let, let, let me figure things out here. I got a changing of the guard here. We got a new guitar player. So please stand by. Yeah, they should call it please stand by. <laughs> please stand by. All right. Well, I think we can segue into the tribute album, Ozzy Randy Rhodes tribute album. And I would say that this is an album that is something special that was packaged in a very special way that was uh, promoted very well. There was a lot of excitement and anticipation, I think, leading up to this. I was a huge, huge Randy Rhodes fan. I still am. Was so upset that, uh, you know, Randy had had passed and everything. And I had heard they sort of seemed like they were talking about this live album pretty far in advance. There were always rumors that there was a live show that Ozzy might have. This is the days before the internet. So you're only picking up little bits and pieces from interviews and magazines and stuff. So I was ready for this. I knew it was coming out. Uh, I can, you know, there's there's Polaroid pictures in my mind of certain uh, moments, musical moments. I, I tell the story of hearing Diary of a Madman for the first time up late at night with the headphones on by the glow of my uh, stereo light. Well, I can remember walking into our mall, uh, Wilkes-Barre, PA uh, mall, and the record store was like straight ahead in front of me. I had a walk, you know, walking towards it. They were blasting the tribute album and it just come out. 
And I was just beyond excited for it. I thought the album cover was amazing. The packaging on it, whereas the packaging on intermission was, was disappointing. This was great. There were all these pictures of Randy. It felt uh, like what the title is, a tribute. You know, it felt like a real uh, tribute to, to Randy. And although I had heard, I had a cassette recording of the King Biscuit Flower Hour show, which I mentioned in the show introduction, they took uh, part of Randy's uh, solo from that particular show. So I had heard Ozzy live with, with Randy, but this was still really special. I was super excited about it. I just remember running to my car and cranking it up and was so cool to hear. I love the way Randy did little different interpretations of some of the songs, the way he would throw in these little licks and runs between the riffs and stuff like that. Uh, I think the set list is great. Uh, and of course, the real special thing was uh, at the end, hearing these outtakes from Dee. And at that point, I had never heard Randy, Randy's spoken voice and I had so many pictures of him. And to hear him, his voice like that was just, it just really uh, took me back and almost emotional, you know, hearing that for the first time. And D is such a delicate uh, number and everything. So I just loved it uh, as I was revisiting it. Uh, there are some things that going back and revisiting it now, I, I, I kind of, and these are all minor, minor quibbles. I, I would have liked to have, I'm not quite sure why they put Goodbye to Romance and No Bone Movies at the end. I know that they're from a different show and they're, uh, you know, got Lee and Bob on them, but that should have been, Goodbye to Romance should have been placed like maybe at the after Believer, before Mr. Crawley, you know, a place where a ballad would have worked in a show. No Bone Movies should have been, I don't know, you know, after Flying High again or something. And then they bring the show, Revelation Mother, or Steal Away the Night. And then they come back out for the encore and they do the Black Sabbath numbers. I, on the Black Sabbath numbers, I was really excited to hear Randy playing these Black Sabbath songs. He takes some in a totally different direction. He doesn't seem to... Whereas Zach Wilde uh, plays it very much, tries to play it the way uh, Tony Iommi would. Randy just seemed to just completely do his own thing here. His guitar solo in Iron Man and Children of the Grave and Paranoid is just completely different than, uh, than the studio versions. He just goes off on them. So I think that that's, that's a lot of fun. You know, the mix of it, I gotta say, as I was revisiting it, wasn't quite as good as I remembered it being. I think that Randy's guitar is a little bit bright sounding or something. It's a little fizzy and brittle. Uh, and in pr preparing for this, I went and I mentioned at the beginning of the show that uh, the majority of this show was taken from uh, Cleveland, Ohio. And you can hear that entire bootleg on, on YouTube or wherever. And I was listening to that show as I was making notes for this. And it was, I was really digging it. And in some ways I wish that they had maybe kept more of that vibe. Now, of course, Ozzy completely redoes all his vocals. Anytime he does a live record, he completely redoes the vocals. And maybe that's what takes away from it a little bit. 
but I found myself enjoying this Cleveland bootleg more than I did uh, listening to the tribute record. It felt a little bit more live to me. It had a little bit more, I don't know, atmosphere or something to it, but, but these are all minor quibbles. At the time, I absolutely loved this. I was just so into Randy Rhodes. Uh, this just felt like such a it really was a tribute to him. The pictures on the inside, the pictures of him with his mother, with with his dog, you know, and everything. At, at the time, these most of these pictures I had never seen before, so I was very excited by that. Uh, so I, uh, you know, overall, very fond memories of of this album. Uh, bittersweet because it felt like you know Ozzy said, "Hey, this is all we got in the vaults." We would find out years later that wasn't the case. But at the time, I thought, all right, this is the only live Randy Rhodes recording that proper official recording that we're going to get. But uh, I loved it. Very, very fond memories of hearing this for the first time and revisiting. It really uh, took me back to what a big Randy fan I was. And just in general, this this era, you know, of Ozzy and everything. It's loved it. Uh, everything you said about this album is exactly the opposite <laughs> of how I feel about it. This is a perfect example of too little, too late. I had no interest in this album when it came out. One reason was because I already had this. I already had this five years prior. Yeah, he's holding up live in Cleveland. Now, cool. there's a little bit of a speed thing. There's a little bit of a speed thing here. So it's, it's good that Tribute was speed corrected. But I had this. Like way 1982, I had this recorded live, live in Cleveland. Um, so I, and plus I heard the, the King Biscuit Flower Hour. I heard that one Saturday evening and that I was really thrilled because that took me by surprise. I would just regularly tune in on Saturday nights and listen to the King Biscuit Flower Hour. And usually I'd hear like Hart, Pat Benatar, <laughs> Fleetwood yeah. Mac. And one time I was surprised, I mean, absolutely ecstatic that I heard you know, the, I forget what the name of the guy who, who was the host, like is Bob Coburn. Is that his name? Yeah, maybe. Yeah, yeah I Bob hear his Coburn. voice in my head. Yeah. Bob Coburn, I think. He said, okay, tonight we have on the King Biscuit Flower Hour, Ozzy Osbourne. He might have even mispronounced his album. He may have even said Ozzy Osbourne. But nevertheless, I was totally taken back and taken off guard. And I was so excited to hear it on the radio. And I remember there was bleeps frequently in between songs because they couldn't have any of the uh, profanity. Um, <laughs> what was cool about this, there's no bleeps on the uh, bat's head soup. Bat's head soup, it's called. And it had no, no bleeps. But on the King Biscuit Flower Hour, it did. And there's a one party said, uh, <laughs> I remember I used to have to turn it down. I listened to it all the time. But I had to turn it down for my, my mom, who probably in retrospect, wouldn't have cared at the time anyway, but I was a little self-conscious about it. Like, uh, he starts the song Flying High Again. He's like, this one's called Flying High Again, so keep on smoking those joints! <laughs> <laughs> in total Aussie fashion, man. Uh, so I used to, like, run over to the stereo and turn it down. <laughs> but anyway, uh, so yeah, I, for as far as, like, hearing Randy, now my first concert, and we've talked about this before, my first concert was Ozzy Osbourne and Diary of a Madman tour. Unfortunately, it was one of the first, if not the first, rescheduled date after Randy died, so I saw him with Brad Gillis. But the set list is the same. So and that was in 1982. So by 1982, I mean, I had already pretty much satiated my 
my my appetite for um for live ozzy and then i don't know i mean i guess i was almost resentful of the fact that tribute was released so much later than when it would be would have been appropriate beat the boots man put this thing out when when ozzy you know was at the height of his career and everybody was fans were were, were more were still mourning randy put it out um but they didn't they waited and you kept hearing i remember in reading the magazines and you kept hearing about um sharon sang or somebody ozzy sang i don't think sharon was ever actually quoted in any interviews but somebody from the ozzy organization if it wasn't ozzy then it was one of the band members or somebody saying that there was in fact live footage live recordings of randy and and that sometime when the moment's right, we don't want to exploit the name. We don't want to exploit his the, the tragedy for monetary gain. But when the time is right, we're we're going to we're going to release these. And we're like, oh, well, that's something to look forward to. And the irony is that it actually seemed to absolutely exploit the tragedy for monetary gain because in 1987, I don't think Ozzy's career was really thriving. So it was like, okay release the Kraken, put out the, the Ozzy and Randy live album. And that's one of the things that I resented about it. It was poorly timed. It was like, it was, this was our ace in the hole. We're going to put it out when, when we really need it the most. And that seemed really transparent to me. So there's that. Uh, as far as the content, um, like I said, I've already heard everything. Uh, Goodbye to Romance, No Bone Movies. The reason that's tacked on the end, um, now they did, they did play Goodbye to Romance further into the Diary Tour because that's when they hung John Allen, the midget, from the, the center spire. And I don't remember what song. I don't remember exactly where it fell into to the... I mean, I could look. I have a bunch of Ozzy bootlegs from 81 to 82. Uh, but I believe it was somewhere around the middle of the, of the, of the set. And so Goodbye to Romance definitely should have been earlier in the context of the album. But No Bone Movies, I don't believe, I could be wrong, I'm sure if I am, someone will correct me, uh, wasn't, wasn't performed during Diary, at least not the second leg of the Diary tour, so it was dropped. These two were together because I think, if I'm not mistaken, this may be the Chelmsford, this is with the original Blizzard of Oz with Bob and, and yeah, Lee. Yeah, Southampton people. Think so these cool. songs are probably back to back in that original context of 1980. Um, and that's why they're they're basically on side four is bonus tracks because they weren't they sort of disrupt looking at the set list on bats head soup we're going uh track for track yeah i mean that's it i don't know crazy train believer mr crowley is side one on bats head soup side one on tribute is i don't know crazy train believer mr crowley side two on bats head soup is flying high again revelation steal away suicide solution uh so side two on tribute is flying high again revelation steal away side three begins with suicide solution and there's no black sabbath song so it's not the complete cleveland performance on bat's head soup probably because it's a single album and you couldn't have all that material on one single album but yeah so in succession after suicide solution iron man children of the grave and my trademark paranoid that finishes out basically the concert format. Side four on tribute is essentially bonus tracks. Goodbye to romance, different lineup with Randy, of course. 
and then the D outtakes. And like you said, it was cool hearing Randy's Randy's voice. No one had heard Randy's voice before, so it was it was interesting. Cool hearing Randy. It was kind of like it, it was a little bit uh, soul stirring, I guess, for lack of a better word, because it was almost like it was a ghost from the past. Um, so that was very effective. Um, but to make the whole package something that I, I don't think it really had that much of a dynamic impact to to make the album that significant for me. The album cover is boring. This is a photo that I had seen five years prior in an issue of Guitar Mag. Actually, Circus Magazine ran that picture full page in 1981, if not 1982. Uh, so it was like they put a purple bluish or a pinkish tint to it. Like, okay. So what? Um, the pictures inside, seen them all, guitar player, um, circus, hit parader. Uh, there's one of Randy from the Diary of a Madman tour book. There's another one from guitar player. I've seen the pictures in the magazines. That was nothing extraordinary. The pictures on the inner sleeve, nice packaging, full color inner sleeves. You see some pictures of Randy. That's cool. Randy when he was a kid, Randy with his brothers and sister, Randy with his mom, young Randy. Um, a note from Dolores Rhodes makes kind of a personal thing, celebrates the legacy of Randy. That's on point. Got some sheet music here from Randy. Got all his guitars, his uh, business card for private guitar lessons. That's really cool. So um, there's that. It, it, it's good and bad. I, I think my biggest complaint about tribute is like i started out saying too little too late um everything about this had been either seen or heard before five years prior and and for anybody that was really like you know a big fan it was kind of like okay is this what i've been waiting for is this what the carrot that's been dang dangling in front of me all this time here it is and it was kind of lackluster it, it really didn't have much of an impact um yeah, it's funny. Maybe it's because, uh, you know, I remember at that time being a bass player and a guitar player, like all the guitar magazines were, you know, it seemed like Randy would be on the cover every, every two or three months or something. He was just getting talked about a lot. And so I certainly would have liked it if, if the album had come out sooner. And I didn't have Bathead Soup. I had something that had some songs from the Montreal show when I did have that King Biscuit show that I recorded off the radio but still I, I don't know I was, I was still excited about it and I guess it was just because I was such a big big fan of Randy and I can kind of see that you know if it had come out sooner it and there was probably some legalities involved in it too you know we did our speak of the devil episode and you know Ozzy we talked about how Ozzy that double live Sabbath album of uh, live Sabbath stuff to get out of his contract with Jet Records. So, you know, maybe there was a part of like, okay, we got to get out of this Jet Records contract first. We got to deal with that. And then, you know, who, who knows? Uh, but I mean, I, I, I see what you mean. It could have come sooner. I don't know how much sooner. You know, I, I, there may have also been, you know, Randy's mother is very protective of, of his legacy also. And, you know, you hear Ozzy and his personal note on here, he talks about 
and he's mentioned this in interviews, you know, talking with Mrs. Rhodes and deciding the time was right for it. Uh, so, you know, there may be things like that, that that played into it. But I think I just remember around that time, Randy just being like in every guitar magazine and everybody talking about it. 1987? Yeah. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. I just remember him because a lot of those magazines didn't really start get going until like 83, 84. So well, guitar player was a lot of the, there's a lot of pictures. Well, there's at least two or three pictures from guitar player and guitar player. He won that while he was still alive. Yeah. I'm thinking I remember so buying that. And I'm not, I wasn't a guitar player. I'm so thinking of guitar on. for the practicing musician. That was the big, uh, guitar player, the famous iconic picture of him standing next to Ozzy holding the, yeah, holding the, trophy. the trophy and everything. There in the corner, top corner. I don't want the record to fall out, but, um, yeah, I, I, there was a lot of a lot of Randy Rhodes, and you're right. It, I mean, it, it it seemed to really come full circle, I guess, with Randy. I don't know. Maybe I, I definitely think it was earlier than 1987, if memory serves. I think in 1987, by and large, the guitar magazines had moved on to like some of the more popular hair metal bands at the time 1987 i think they were probably celebrating like warren Martini or somebody like that where andy was definitely a phenomenon in guitar magazines and stuff like that and the reason i know is because i bought anything any magazine that had ozzy on the cover or randy yeah. on the cover and i remember buying guitar magazines and had sheet music and stuff in and i'm like ripping that out taking the pictures of randy and putting them in my scrapbook my Aussie scrapbook, which I still have, by the way, um, circa 1982, 83. But then when Jay came in, it's like a lot of the, a lot of the the mainstream metal mags, like <clears throat> in the U.S. Anyway, Hit Parader, Hit Parader was like a lot of pictures of Jake, a lot of pictures of Ozzy and Jake. Um, but Randy never went away. I mean, there was always an interest in Randy, and Randy, I guess as time went on, you're right. Randy became a bit more sacred. And of course, that that era of Ozzy is, I mean, who can deny that it's 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 not the best, um, that, that it is the best. It, it, it's the best Ozzy solo stuff. I mean, Diary or Blizzard and Diary are, are the two best albums. And of course, you know, largely shaped by by Randy Rhodes. I think when you say what would have been the right time, well, the right time would have been in place to speak of the devil. That's when it should have come out. Instead, we had to mess around with Ozzy inexplicably recording a whole double album of Black Sabbath songs. I couldn't figure it out at the time. Did I mind it? No. But, you know, would I have rather heard of Randy live? Of course. I think everybody would have. I think it was strange. I think it was one of the instances where the business interferes with what the public wants or what the public demand would be because of whatever reason, maybe a time isn't right and you can't make the optimum financial gain from it. Or maybe, yeah, there's some legalities. Was it because Dolores Rhodes held the cards? Maybe, I don't know. It didn't seem like Randy, the whole Randy thing was kind of modest. I mean, it was just sort of him and his mom, really. I mean, he didn't have a big organization behind him. He didn't have a team of lawyers. I mean, the poor guy, you know, he uh, unwittingly, I guess you could say, to some degree, joined a big rock and roll machine and ultimately met his demise while he was a part of that. 
and um, and that's sad. Um, but I think in, in tribute could have been done better. I think '87, like I said, was a more advantageous year for Ozzy, for the Ozzy organization to capitalize on something that was more or less their ace in the hole. That's my takeaway from it, anyway. Yeah, one interesting uh, little little side note that I always found interesting, and this is for the guitar players. Oh, anybody might enjoy this little tidbit. When Randy played uh, Children of the Grave on the original Black Sabbath version, they're tuned down three frets. So for those who aren't musicians, it means you tune the strings lower on the guitar to give it a heavier sound. So instead of playing it like that, Randy's he still plays it so the pitches are the same, but he plays it at a different spot on the guitar. So he's basically playing it on different frets than Tony Iommi played it to sort of simplify it, but it still sounds, Ozzy doesn't have to sing any higher or, or you know, in a, different, in a different pitch or anything. So I always thought that was interesting that he, he played Children of the Grave a little differently yeah. and, and the way he, and Randy admits that, you know, he, he often said, I wasn't a fan of Black Sabbath. So yeah. you could hear that he just probably gave those songs enough of a listen to figure out the chords. And then he pretty much absolutely did his own thing yeah. you know, in the solo sections. Whereas, as I think I mentioned this earlier, you know, Zach tends to play it a little bit closer to the Iomi version. So I think that was cool. I also recently, it's another little tidbit of information. I, and I had a search for this. There's a, there's a bunch of different interviews with the producer, Max Norman. And for those who don't remember, Max had produced uh, the first three Ozzy uh, studio albums and Speak of the Devil. And uh, so he was brought back. He was brought back for this. And uh, he talks about how they had this entire show this wasn't taken from, you know, in a typical live album situation, the band records a couple different nights, multiple nights, uh, different locations, and then they they pick and choose. That's kind of the way Live Evil was. They go through, they, they pick the best songs and whatever. But according to Max Norman, he was just handed a real tape, uh, real to real tape thing that just had this entire entire show on it. And he doesn't remember uh, he didn't really say anything about this splicing in the Montreal show. He seemed to just say it showed up on my thing as one complete show. There weren't multiple shows that we were that we were picking from or, or anything like that. So uh, and, you know, and since then they have released like uh, just recently they reissued uh, Blizzard of Oz and there's a full live show on there. And I'm not 100 percent sure. I have to look it up really quick where, where that show is from, but uh, it is kind of interesting to hear Max Norman's uh, take on it that, you know, he was basically just given one show and he just wow. took that show then and, uh, you know, did what he did with it, which seems strange because now we know that the, the stuff, uh, Goodbye to Romance and No Bone Movies was from a different show, mm. you know, but I don't think he was aware of that. I think the Osbournes must have just edited together and said, okay, here it is, go, <laughs> you know, yeah. take this and do it. It wasn't a typical live thing where he was sitting there with multiple shows and these were the, the versions that he decided to, uh, that he decided to take. There was a live, there was a live album that came out, I think in 2011. Um, it's just called Ozzy Live. 
And it's always been kind of curious to me because nothing in the liner notes says where it was recorded. And I, I, and I think it, some of it seems to correspond with the Cleveland. I think this might be another, I think this might be another one of those situations where there's certain, it's like a compilation of live things and maybe that's why. Um, but this is to me, probably a better sounding as far as a, a live document representation of Ozzy and Randy than the tribute is. Um, there actually isn't even any, oh, look at that. The executive producer, Sharon Osborne. And I stand corrected here. The uh, recent uh, deluxe 2011 edition of Diary of a Madman has a complete show, which is listed as just being songs recorded live during the second leg of the Blizzard of Oz tour. Yeah, it's a little ambiguous because it was uh, originally that 2011 was in a box set before they were released individually. Yeah. So it was both albums and then you had the live thing. So it's ambiguous in the sense of like, okay, well, does this represent the album diary or does it represent? Yeah, and that's Blizzard the same the show, Ozzy Live, the vinyl version that came out. Yeah is the same show that is on the deluxe edition of the 2011 deluxe edition of uh, Diary of a Madman. Uh, but anyway, yeah, I mean, I, I don't mean to be negative about the album. Um, to get onto it too much would, would be unfair. Um, I mean, of course, you know, Randy sounds amazing. Randy's an amazing, he was an amazing guitar player and uh, his performance on on these songs with Max Norman's treatment um, makes it sound better technically than uh, anything that was from the original source. So you have that. And uh, as a tribute to Randy, uh, it is valid. I just have issues with the timing. Um, I liked Randy's interpretation of the Black Sabbath songs. And I, I say interpretation for the reasons that you just went into, that it sounds like Randy Rhodes interpreting and making them a more of an Ozzy Osbourne band song, which I think is appropriate. Um, Brad Gillis sort of did the kind of sort of the same thing on Speak of the Devil, but you could tell that he was trying to kind of have one foot in each department, a little bit of Iomi, a little bit of Randy, a little bit of both put into that. This was decidedly Randy's interpretation of of the songs and it, yeah. it, it suited the situation very well um so kudos to that um the guitar solo and suicide solution it's amazing um but you know i mean it was nothing new heard it blown away by it five years prior but if you were just coming into this and this was your first uh exposure experience with a live randy I, yeah i could easily see how you'd be blown away because you know the ferocity of randy and the fiery skill of randy on in the studio was somewhat and i hate to use the word timid but it would be timid in comparison to his live approach um yeah i mean he was he was an amazing guitar player one of the best of all time if you ask me for my money anyway um but then again you know, I'm a big Ozzy Black Sabbath fan. So, but uh, yeah, it, it, you really, I 
as far as the content's concerned, I can't find any fault with it. Uh, Ozzy probably had to. Maybe not. Um, he could have done it all, warts and all, his voice. Um, we, we've heard the original source, the King Biscuit or the Bats. Yeah, it's, it's, it's not it's, horrible. It's but, not horrible. You can see where he would want to because he, he'd done it on everything else. I mean, he did it on Speak of the Devil, why? which was far worse in its original context, his original tapes, but why wouldn't he? Um, threw some money, put some money into it. Uh, it's interesting. Uh, he, Ozzy is the executive producer. That's kind of curious. Produced and engineered by Max Norman. That makes more sense. But. Yeah, and uh, uh, I just forgot what I was going to say. Yeah, I was going to comment on the uh, the album cover. You know, it's a very iconic uh, picture there, Ozzy holding up Randy. And uh, for those out there who might be curious, there's very little video footage of Randy with Ozzy. And there is some eight millimeter footage from the show that that album cover was taken from, which was Rosemont, Illinois on January 24th, 1982. So you can see that eight millimeter footage and you can see Ran Ozzy picking up Randy and you know, what will become that iconic uh, tribute album cover, you know, something that's, that's uh, you know, when you, when you talk about heavy metal photography, some of the greatest like live, live shots, you know, that, that picture is, uh, is yeah. absolutely iconic. It is. Um, but like I said, it, Circus, first time I saw it, I was, I thought that was so cool. Like Ozzy lifting up Randy and and I saw it in Circus Magazine, so I'm sure a lot of other people did too, because it wasn't like that was it was hard to come by. I mean, I bought it at the grocery store, so there was a lot of people that were looking at that picture. Um, I'm gonna pick it apart. Uh, cover. It's like, I guess, for the sake of a title, you have to have Ozzy's name, Ozzy Randy, Ozzy Osbourne, Randy Rhodes tribute. Um, what would the harm have been to have a really cool picture of Randy on the cover? Why does Ozzy have to be in it at all? Um, I guess maybe for the same reason that the original band was supposed to be called Blizzard of Oz, but then that became the title of the album and Ozzy's name was rather large on the album cover. So you have to, you have to go with who's going to sell the album. Most more people were familiar with Ozzy than they were Randy, even though Randy gained a lot of popularity while he was in Ozzy's band. And of course the whole tragedy brought even more attention to his name. I guess the powers that be felt that Ozzy's name still needed to be on it. But I mean, I would have, I would have rather have seen a really cool picture of Randy and, and make it more about Randy. I mean, even the picture that's on the back cropped a certain way might've been, might've been better on the front, but there's a lot of cool pictures. Randy was a really animated uh force on stage um as competent as he was as a player was equaled by his uh showmanship and uh there were a lot of photographs where randy just looks super cool especially when he was wearing like the diary of a madman outfit with the leather vest and, and yeah. those uh metal rivets or whatever i mean there's I, I remember one picture that always got me excited was when i i got that issue of uh was actually i think it was an issue of guitar player not the commemorative one where after he won, maybe even after he died, I had Randy on a cover with, he was playing, he was holding the, um, the cream colored Les Paul. I think that was, that was the famous issue of guitar player with, with yeah. Randy. 
Uh, but there was an issue. I remember my school library had a guitar player magazine. It was only music magazine. I think they might have had Rolling Stone, but I, I don't think so because Rolling Stone was a little edgy. But they had a guitar player magazine in my school library. And I remember I saw a picture of Randy. They had all the winners of the contest or the reader's poll or something. And they had a little picture of Randy. And I remember I, I cut it out. I, I, I ripped it out of the magazine. I put it in. I slid it in one of my books. And I took it home and I, I cut it out and I put it in my, in my Aussie scrapbook. But it was a picture and it was kind of dark and and it, 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 uh, Randy's eyes, like around his eyes, looked kind of dark. And he almost looked like he just looked super cool. And he was wearing that vest and it was like he was kind of crouched down a little bit. And he had that Mick Ronson haircut, which I didn't recognize as a Mick Ronson haircut at the time. But now that's how I identify it since I've become more familiar with Mick Ronson. And of course, Randy's appreciation for Mick Ronson and it kind of modeled his his look after Mick Ronson a little bit but it was a really cool picture of him so I would have rather have seen a cool picture of Randy on the cover but it uh, works for me I think it makes sense. Of, again I think it's a cool image and if it had just said Randy Rhodes on the cover it would have confused some a certain group of people so you know the compromise is Ozzy and Randy so it does sort of fit uh I'm glad that he put Randy's name on the cover because if it was just like Ozzy Osbourne tribute, it wouldn't have made any, wouldn't have made any sense. So, but I, I like it. I think it's you know when I think of iconic heavy metal, uh, hard rock live shots, you know that's that's one that definitely comes to mind for me. Yeah, I'm a, I'm a very visual person though, and I, I when I was a kid and, and still to this day, I, I like to I like to buy magazines. I like to see. I like to associate imagery with the music that's why you know i often when i listen to music i'll look at the album cover I, I usually have some kind of visual stimulation to go along with the audio stimulation and i just didn't feel based on the um uh, over publicized nature of the picture that it really satisfied that niche for me um it wasn't anything certainly there's nothing wrong with it but I thought that it could have had something that was a little bit more stimulating that I hadn't seen so many times before. I even had that picture in a frame in my room in 1982-ish because it was a full page, like I said, probably about five times already. It's a full page in Circus Magazine. Circus Magazine had two issues in around 1981. One was prior to Diary of a Madman coming out and another was after. And I wish I I had those here with me they're they on the other side of the room but they were the one that was prior to 1981 had a lot of cool pictures of Ozzy the, 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 he was on the cover of Circus Magazine wearing a pink tutu uh, so that was interesting but inside there were a lot of candid pictures yeah. of Ozzy um, some pictures of um, the original band and as well as pictures of the new band because it was right around that tra transitional period the other issue with uh, uh, Ozzy on the cover was he's wearing a red windbreaker and he's kind of going like this. His hair is blowing. Yeah. And he's got a really cool lapel pin. That's a Blizzard of Oz. It has the skull with the horns. And it says Blizzard yeah. of Oz. It's got that on it. And I wanted that so bad. I'm like, <laughs> where do you get this? Wow, I got to have that pin. Uh, that was on the cover. And on the inside, a lot of pictures from uh, the diary tour. With Don Airy, um, Rudy Sarzo, Tommy Aldridge, Randy, a lot of pictures. In it. And one of the pictures was that uh, picture of, of what would end up on the cover of Tribute to Black and White. So 
another cool picture of Ozzy wearing what looked like that that red or rust colored chainmail suit that he yeah. wore on diary with the with the leather cod piece. And you would see that in pictures in various forms of completion. Sometimes it had like the full like open chest with the one piece. Yeah. Other times he'd wear like just the pants or maybe he'd have the top pulled down and he had like a t-shirt over top. Or sometimes it was maybe the shirt part of it or something that was like similar to that and he'd have like sweatpants. Um, but in that in that second issue of Circus Magazine, he was in the full regalia. And in the background, you could see the castle set and uh, some live pictures of Randy and stuff like that. So that was really stimulating. Um, and I guess probably in the, in the photo archives or something that the band or the, the organization might have had, they, they might have thought, well, let's, let's put something in there that people haven't seen that hasn't been running a circulation of 100,000 magazines or something like that. Let's, let's really make this a tribute. Let's really make this special. Let's make it as special as we can, even though people may have heard these recordings. Let's clean them up. Let's make them sound really good. Let's do a tribute to Randy and make these, these recordings sound really good, which they did. Likewise, the, the visual package, I think I maybe could have had a little bit more attention paid to it, but that's just my personal right. Yeah. I was okay with it. Again, I liked all the individual pictures and stuff. And knowing what we know now, I wished it, you know, maybe they just didn't have a show from the Diary of a Madman tour, but really the only song from this era that we wasn't on on the album was Over the Mountain. That's a song that they played, you know, on the di on the uh, Diary of a Madman tour. So it would Yeah, it was an opener. Yeah, it would have been cool if that if they had, had a recording of that. There's some nice bootlegs from the Diary Tour, I think, Kalamazoo, Michigan. Mm -hmm. I think it's a soundboard, or I don't think it's a radio broadcast, but it's a really good soundboard. So, you know. Well, this is, this, this is from the Diary Tour. Um, it must have been like the second leg of the Diary. Uh, isn't it on this, like right before? Doesn't he even say, like, this is from our upcoming new album? I think on the bootleg, if you listen to the bootlegs, isn't it like right before the Diary of Madman came out? Um, I don't know. I do know though that once the album was released, like if you go according to the date of when the album was released and some of the shows, it was technically out after the album was released. The show that I saw opened with Over the Mountain because I remember <clears throat> in the center, there was like three like cathedral spires. There was a large one in the center. And I remember the lights were, were all dim and there was like, like two candles on the on the two furthest, the one on the far left and the far right, two candle light things. And then in the middle, there was a dim light and a chair. And behind the chair, or off to the side of the chair, there was the executioner, the big executioner guy. So you knew something was was going to happen. And then of course they played the intro music, which was the Carmina, what was it, Brenna? What, what is that? The the omen theme. Yeah, Carmina. Uh, Brenna. Yeah. And then, and then had the, the I guess it was probably the pre-recorded pre-recorded drum track, which would have been Lee Kerslick. And then as the as the, the triplet drum thing erupted, uh, the sparks flew and Ozzy came tumbling out of the chair, went down the steps, picked up the cross and held the cross up, and then slammed it down on the ground. And man, it was, it was pretty intense. It was pretty cool. So yeah, I mean, that was definitely marked by over the mountain, over the mountain was the uh, 
was that was the the first song on the diary tour at least once the tour album maybe one of the legs second leg once that got got going then they changed the set list up but uh, you know all the other songs were, were still played they were still in rotation with like i said yeah, the, cleveland, the cleveland and the uh, montreal show were may and july of 81 uh diary was released november of of 81 and the Diary of a Madman tour started on uh, the U.S. leg of the tour. Uh, I just lost it. I just had it here. I think it started December, December 81 to March 19th, 82. So the, they would have been like kind of right before. And if you listen to the, I don't think this is on the tribute version, but if you listen to the bootlegs, because I was listening to them, I can't remember if it's Cleveland or Montreal, you hear Ozzy say, this is a song from our upcoming new album. Uh, it's called Believer. Did you say that March was the conclusion of the Diary Tour? The first leg of it. Right. Okay. Because I saw him in April. It was like April 22nd. Yeah. The, for the North American, uh, the first leg of the tour was uh, started December, ended with Randy's passing. And that's how, that's how they break it up. And then the second North American leg, you know, they started up again yeah okay all right well, well uh you got any final thoughts on the tribute album no <laughs> you said it all to quote an Aussie rare b-side yeah <clears throat> well for me like uh, i guess you know my my final thoughts it's being such a randy fan it is uh, you know I, I i did enjoy revisiting it and uh if you haven't out there heard uh the original bootleg versions of these, I, I encourage you to look them up. You can find them on, on YouTube, these original shows. And I think that they're, they're a good listen because they were radio broadcasts. So the quality of them is pretty good. So, all right, well, we'd like to thank everybody for uh, listening to this podcast and for supporting the podcast. If you would like to support us even more, uh, you can go to kofi.com, that's ko-fi.com slash into the void a black sabbath podcast all one word and you can make a donation there i'd like to thank tom d for his generous donation that he gave us uh, recently and uh if you can't get enough of me and darren talking black sabbath you can go to my youtube channel layer of the alchemist and darren and i do a feature that we call sabbath sunday where we get together with sunday on sunday sometimes with special guests and we talk about Black Sabbath and Black Sabbath related topics. Okay, so we'd like to thank everybody. We'll be moving along, like you said, Cronal, uh, moving along the timeline here. And next for us will be Dream Evil. So we will see you all at the uh, Dream Evil episode. And just remember that you can only trust yourself, the 19 Black Sabbath studio albums, and Into the Void, a Black Sabbath podcast.